Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sam Pizzagatti, author and associate fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies, who discusses the end of the 20-year U.S. war in Afghanistan and the long history of war profiteering. Marcus Batchelor of People for the American Way, who assesses recent national and local protest actions demanding the Senate pass the For the People Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to protect democracy. And Alex Cohen, a member of the Jessica Resnicek support team, who talks about the national movement demanding the removal of a five-year terrorism sentence against oil pipeline resistor Jessica Resnicek. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In late July, Hong Kong's largest teachers' union was attacked in China's state media as a poisonous tumor and quickly disowned by the city's educational bureau. To save itself, the Hong Kong Professional Teachers' Union cut all its ties to the city's pro-democracy groups and promised to find new ways to promote Chinese culture. By mid-August, the union disbanded as Beijing increased its control over local affairs in Hong Kong. The teachers' union had been the largest single professional union in Hong Kong and the backbone of the pro-democracy movement there. At the same time, the Civil Human Rights Front, which organized many of the city's largest protest marches, disbanded. According to The Economist magazine, the scene has turned into hopelessness and fear. The ruling Communist Party intensified its repression in Hong Kong in January by arresting Winnie Wu, who organized a strike by medical workers. Labor activist Lee Chuck Yan is in prison, serving a 20-month sentence for participating in pro-democracy protests. The Economist magazine observed that in the near future, unions in Hong Kong may resemble unions on the mainland, whose main goal is to control dissent. On August 18th, U.S. Federal District Judge Sharon Gleason tossed out the permits for a controversial oil project near the North Slope of Alaska. The ruling put ConocoPhillips' $6 billion Willow Project on hold. The oil drilling project had been approved by the Trump administration in 2020 and defended by the U.S. Interior Department under Joe Biden. The ruling is a major victory for environmentalists and Native communities. Gleason ruled that the U.S. Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service failed to adequately assess the climate impact of the project. Gleason found that the agency hadn't specified how the operation could hurt endangered polar bears or what measures would be in place to protect them. The project site, west of Prudhoe Bay, had the potential to produce 160,000 barrels of crude oil a day. Jeremy Lieb of Earth Justice the lead attorney for the plaintiff group explained, this certainly gives the Biden administration the opportunity to reconsider whether to approve the project in light of its commitment to address climate change, and it should do that. Lieb said we're hopeful that the project won't come back. During the debate over the 2017 Trump tax cuts, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson 
fought for broader tax reductions for pass-through companies, where taxes are paid directly by business owners. Johnson lobbied the Treasury Department and won President Trump's support for the provision, which benefited a handful of billionaires, including Michael Bloomberg. According to ProPublica, Johnson pushed for the provision, which costs billions of dollars in revenue, directly benefiting two Wisconsin billionaire families, Dick and Liz Lane, owner of the Uline Packaging Company, and Diane Hendricks, a roofing magnate. Together, they contributed $20 million to groups backing Johnson's 2016 re-election campaign. ProPublica calculated that the pass-through tax cut generated a half billion dollars in tax savings for the two families over eight years. Overall, ProPublica identified 82 ultra-wealthy people who cashed in on a billion dollars in tax savings from the pass-through tax provision. A study by the U.S. Treasury Department found that 60% of the pass-through tax benefits went to the top 1% of taxpayers, which was more than four times the funds received by the bottom 90% of American taxpayers. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After 20 years of occupation, the U.S. war in Afghanistan ended on August 31st. As the U.S. military raced to evacuate Americans and allied Afghan civilians out of the country, two suicide bombers struck just outside Kabul's international airport on August 26th, killing 13 U.S. service members and at least 169 Afghans. U.S. officials said the attack was carried out by the ISIS-K group, which was quickly targeted by two American drone strikes. The Pentagon reported that the evacuation from Kabul, which began in July, facilitated the departure of some 122,000 people, including 5,400 Americans. But an estimated several hundred Americans and thousands of Afghans were said to be still looking for a way out of the country. As the last U.S. plane flew out of Afghanistan, President Biden made a speech stating that he refused to extend this forever war and explained that the era of invading countries with an aim toward installing American values was no longer viable. Your reporter spoke with author and Institute for Policy Studies Associate Fellow Sam Pizzigatti, who talks about the end of America's longest war and his recent article titled Let's Take the Profit Out of War. You know, when we look at Afghanistan, um, I think of all of us are are somewhat inured to the to the horror of of modern warfare, which is you know pretty understandable. We've we've just lived through in the 20th century the most bloody, the bloodiest century um, in human um, history. In, in World War II alone, uh, 75 million people across the globe died. In Afghanistan, over the tw- past 20 years, nearly a quarter million people have have died. Um, that that sort of bloodletting is is part of the fabric of our modern s- society. And when World War One happened, 40 million people died. People across the world were absolutely aghast 
And right after the war, there was a rush to prevent something like that from ever happening again. And and so people started to look around, you know, why is this happening? Um, And and what they did is they followed the money. Um, And people realized that some people were getting incredibly rich off of prepping for war. Um, And these merchants of death, and that was the phrase that people used in the 1930s, merchants of death, these merchants of death had a vested interest in perpetuating arms races. Um, So in the U.S. Senate, they set up a a special Senate committee chaired by Republican North Dakota's um, Gerald Nye um, to look into this. And they had hearings over the course of of, of, of two years, and 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 I and others concluded that war had become, in, in I's phrase, uh, a matter of profit for the few, and and they tried to do something about that, um, but they failed. And we went into World War II and and the, and the greatest horror that humanity had ever seen, and and that's the situation we're in today. That we have enormous profiteering in our what Eisenhower called the military industrial um, uh, complex and and that is you know perpetuating this constant arms race that we've had and the more the deeper and more intense the arms race the more likely armed conflict becomes. Sam as you talk about in your recent article your organization the Institute for Policy Studies has done some initial calculations on uh, war profits in Afghanistan. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so if, if we look at the uh, just the last five years alone, alone which is what we've done this um, summer, we looked at um, CEO pay at three corporate giants that are very much involved in military contracting. Um, they were Boeing, Raytheon, and Floor. So at those three companies, the CEOs at those three companies over the past five years have taken home $236 million. So it's in, in enormously profitable for, for these uh, the top execs. The irony here is, is, that, is that we actually have on the books regulations that are supposed to prevent this. We have on the books in the Federal Register um, a rule that says that no top executive of a defense contractor or any federal contractor for that matter um, can take over a certain sum every year in salary. And that right now is is $568,000. But the problem is um, most corporate executives today, most all corporate executives, don't get the bulk of their pay from salary. They get the bulk of their pay from stock awards not salary. So to talk about a limit on salary is meaningless, as we see in that $236 million figure for the three CEOs at Floor, Raytheon, and Boeing over the last five years. That was Sam Pizzicotti, author, associate fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies, and co-editor of their newsletter, inequality.org. Find a link to his recent article titled, Let's Take the Profit Out of War, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Tens of thousands of protesters rallied in Washington, D.C. and other small and large U.S. cities on August 28th to demand the Senate Act to protect voting rights. Organizers of the march, including Reverend Al Sharpton and Martin Luther King III, hoped to pressure lawmakers to pass legislation 
to counter a wave of Republican Party voter suppression laws and election subversion measures in GOP-controlled states that disproportionately impact communities of color and other Democratic-leaning voters. The rally was held on the 58th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic 1963 March on Washington, in which he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. Throughout the summer, protests and nonviolent civil disobedience actions have been held demanding passage of the For the People Act, a sweeping elections and ethics bill that would set national standards for voting and override state-level restrictions, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore voting rights protections that were stripped out of the 1965 Voting Rights Act by the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority. Your reporter spoke with Marcus Batchelor, People for the American Way's Deputy Director of Leadership Programs, who talks about the urgency to pressure President Biden and Democratic congressional leaders to prevent the further erosion of voting rights and the imposition of white nationalist minority rule. On the 58th anniversary uh, of the March on Washington, uh, thousands of people came from across the country and from here in the district uh, to, to demonstrate, to come together, to make their voices heard, uh, to tell the Congress and the president uh, that the right to vote um, is on the line. Um, in very real ways uh, this year, right now. Uh, and if we are going to secure the dream that so many folks dreamed 58 years ago uh, on the Mall in Washington, that we needed to recommit to those fights today. Uh, and so you saw young people um, and, and veterans of the movement um, and activists from a broad range of, of coalitions uh, come together uh, and make their voices heard to, to demand that we pass legislation like the For the People Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and uh, the D.C. statehood bill um, to, to, to open up our democracy and make it real uh, for, for so many folks who have been historically shut out. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that that is uh, what we saw, really, a convergence of humanity, folks from all walks of life coming together to say that this is the central issue, uh, that if we care as much about uh, funding the infrastructure bill uh, as the president did, then we should care equally as much in, in really securing uh, and buttressing the infrastructure of our democracy, and, and fundamentally so, first and foremost, that's making sure that everybody has the right to vote. Marcus, I think it would be important to get a status check on these two pieces of legislation, and that would be the John Lewis Civil Rights Advancement Act that we've been talking about, as well as For the People Act. Both bills, uh, both the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, are both now squarely in the purview of the United States Senate. The U.S. House uh, passed the For the People Act. Uh, back in March. Um, and so it's been sitting in the Senate uh, for over 170 days now. The The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was passed by the House last week. They came back briefly from recess to pass that bill. Um, and that, now that is squarely in the Senate. The, the barrier now to getting it to the president's desk and putting these protections in place uh, is the filibuster, an arcane rule that's not in our Constitution, uh, but that is really uh, derived uh, from uh, from senators who wanted to block progress, to say that a simple majority uh, wasn't enough uh, to pass legislation in the Senate 
uh, for most things that you needed uh, a 60 person super majority to pass things through the Senate. But what we've seen is that the filibuster in practice has really just been uh, used as a tool to block progress. They attempted to block in many ways the, the 64 and 65 uh, civil rights and voting rights acts and, you know, even things like the 14th and 15th amendments. There are loopholes to getting around the filibuster during the Trump administration. The president actually got uh, two Supreme Court justices confirmed with less than a filibuster with 51 votes. Uh, so we, we've seen in practice that there that the loopholes to the filibuster are wide, i.e., you know, appointing a Supreme Court justice, but very narrow when it comes to things like protecting the right to vote. So we're pressuring the Senate to say that there should be a cutout, that the filibuster should be removed as an obstacle to getting these pieces of legislation passed, and they should do it as quickly as possible to get it to the president's desk. Marcus, there's been uh, much criticism of the Democrats not making voting rights a priority at this very critical moment. There's been criticism of the congressional leadership in the Democratic Party and Joe Biden himself. I wonder if you think that reading is correct or have you seen anything change? There seems to be much more focus on the infrastructure bill than voting rights itself. And of course, voting rights is the singular right in our democracy from which all other rights flow. It's got to be ultimately the most important thing to protect. What are your thoughts about the criticism of complacency? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's it's accurate. You know, that is what uh, advocates across our country uh, are saying. That is what advocates have come to D.C. all summer, right, to tell the Congress uh, and to tell the president that we worked hard, right, that we showed up in record numbers in the middle of a global pandemic to give you these majorities so that you could do those fundamental things like protect our democracy that two weeks before the president was inaugurated, right, was under direct attack from a violent overthrow. If he believes, and, and I think because he bore direct witness to it that he does, if the president believes that protecting our democracy, that our democracy uh, is, is on a thread, that protecting our democracy is essential work right now, then these bills have to be passed. But we have not seen the type of energy and fervor from the White House or from Congress uh, to protect voting rights than we've seen, for example, like you said, on the infrastructure bill. Right, We saw a full court press to get those investments, as good as they are, across the line, but ignored the voices who were critical right, to making these majorities possible, ignoring those voices when they said, we, we can't keep out-organizing racist laws. We can't keep out-organizing the seemingly insurmountable barriers that states across the country are putting on the right to vote. We will not be able to beat back the tidal wave right, of legislation that has been passed just since the last election to restrict the right to vote. And if the federal government does not step in like it did in 64 and 65, then we will lose those majorities. And all those other things, the progress on infrastructure and all those other issues that we care about, and we're trying to make the president uh, and the Congress feel that urgency. Um, and the good thing is they're feeling the pressure, but we need them to get this across the finish line. And unfortunately, you know, on things like gerrymandering, those deadlines are quickly elapsing. Um, and if we don't do something quickly, uh, we're going to lose ground in, and hopefully not in very irrevocable ways. That was Marcus Batchelor, People for the American Way's Deputy Director of Leadership Programs. 
learn more about the organizing underway to pressure Congress to pass democracy protection legislation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2016, a section of the pipe laid in Iowa, as part of the Dakota Access Pipeline, was disabled in an act of sabotage. The direct action was carried out in solidarity with the indigenous-led movement opposed to construction of the pipeline, led by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota, before the pipeline became operational. No one was arrested at the time, but a year later in July 2017, Two members of the Catholic Worker Movement, Jessica Reznicek and Ruby Montoya, publicly took responsibility for the action and were arrested. They both pled guilty in separate trials. Reznicek was sentenced to three years in prison, with a five-year domestic terrorism enhancement added on for a total of eight years. The federal judge who sentenced her, Rebecca Ebinger, was a Republican appointed by President Obama in an expression at the time of bipartisanship. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Alex Cohen, a member of the Jessica Reznicek support team who's worked with her since 2016. Here he talks about her case and the nationwide efforts being made by activist groups to remove the domestic terrorism charge from her sentence. There's this view around what she did as, you know, being this, like, you know, horrific thing and And the way she talks about it is like she sat there and she watched them construct the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so then she taught herself how to deconstruct it. And so like where they used welders to weld it apart, she unwelded it before it was operational. She was sentenced and then she went back to the Catholic worker community, continued her service work and preparing for prison. And then she self-reported on August 11th to the Waseca a federal correctional institute where she is now. The terrorism enhancement, can you just say a little bit more, more about that and what it can or is usually used to apply to? My understanding, there's like some key tenets of it and most of them are as direct violence or threat of violence against the U.S. government or buildings or their employees or their families. And so while it's been used in the past, particularly against other environmental activists, there's not like strong precedent for it outside of that being used on such a case. Um, And all of the most recent examples are attacks against government buildings or government employees. And so interestingly enough, Joe Biden's Department of Justice decided that the Capitol insurrectionists did not define with the domestic terrorism enhancement, yet Jessica's actions did. So it's a, as terrorism has always been a very politically charged word, and this enhancement in and of itself and the way it's being applied is also, once again, a clear political decision by the Biden administration. So she's serving, she's, she self-reported just a, a couple weeks ago, she's in prison. She has an eight-year-plus sentence, right? Yep, eight years in and then three years supervised probation and a $3.2 million restitution to energy transfer partners, the company behind the pipeline. 
And d does anybody have any idea where they arrived at that number, that dollar figure? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think it was pretty much what energy transfer asked for and what the prosecution put in. And unfortunately, they pinned um, in the sentencing one of the other things that went really wrong and is going to go forward in the, the formal appeal that's already filed and then the appeal that we're doing in the public court of opinion is the feds basically pinned all these other fires that Jessica or Ruby never owned up to, said they didn't commit, that the feds agreed they didn't commit, that the judge recognized they didn't commit, but added it into her sentencing, which impacted the amount of restitution. You know, multiple amounts of fires to construction equipment that everyone agrees they didn't do, yet they put it in her sentencing report. Tell me about the movement to try to get the five-year terrorism enhancement sentence removed. Right now, we're culminated behind a petition drive, basically asking Joe Biden to uh, commute this use of this enhancement in her sentence. So we are not seeking a full pardon, though we wouldn't be opposed to one. But Jessica is very clear that, you know, she owned up to what she did. Um, she's not trying to overturn her guilty plea or anything like that. Just a unified voice saying that you know, protecting the water and climate action, especially given the current violence of the climate crisis and water contamination issues is not terrorism. So we're actually seeing a lot of support. The petition, I think the most important part is that it's not an endorsement of her actions. It's just a unified voice that recognizes the dangerous precedent of uh, Joe Biden's Department of Justice deciding that direct action during the unfolding climate crisis is terrorism. So groups from 350 National to Rainforest Action Network to Extinction Rebellion to peace groups like Code Pink, Veterans for Peace, and About Face, Vets Against the War. Uh, we're just seeing a really broad-based uh, support from national organizations that say, you know what, this isn't terrorism and this needs to be reversed. What about support from indigenous groups? Yeah, we're seeing support from indigenous groups, just a lot of support um, too from like the Line 3 movement on social media. A lot of the groups that are sharing the actions that are happening in Line 3 really see this as interconnected, which makes sense because, um, you know, recently this report came out that the reason the Fusion Center in northern Minnesota isn't turning over FOIA requests to uh, the media is because they're deeming the Line 3 protests as terrorist activity. So we're seeing this trend spread out and it's really impacting everyone, which is why it's so crucial. We fight it where we can. That was Alex Cohen, a member of the Jessica Resnicek support team. Jessica's co-defendant, Ruby Montoya, is due to be sentenced on September 1st. Learn more about the group supporting Jessica Resnicek by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at 
ctlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, KMUD in Garberville, California, WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.